I don't think that is the right path for modern men. And in, in some ways, that's a regression. And we should embrace a changing definition of what it means to be a man and how we can use that to feel content and self-actualized. Welcome, friends, to episode 250 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Chuck Palahniuk's 1996 novel, Fight Club. Are you ready to destroy something beautiful, James? Are you ready to wipe your ass with the Mona Lisa? Let's get extreme. <laughs> yeah. Destroy everything pretty and, and wholesome. Anarchy. It's very uh, edgelordy kind of stuff we're, yeah. we're dealing with today. And I, I am going to fully admit, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with this movie. And I read the book for the first time, because I can remember talking to my, I had a my, one of my first psychology classes I had, I remember talking to my teacher about it. And so this ha- had to have been like ninth or 10th grade. Um, and, I, and I even like shared a passage from the book with him. So the other thing I want to get out from the gate here is that we're going to be spoiling the story. So this isn't necessarily going to be coverage for someone who has like never heard about Fight Club um, because it, much like The Sixth Sense or like a lot of other like famous spoilers out there, I feel like most people know the know the twist of this story. So we're going to go ahead and spoil it. So this is your last chance to check out. Okay, so Tyler Durden and the narrator are the same person. He has split personalities. Anyway, this is the thing I talked to my psychology uh, teacher about. So I remember mm-hmm. I have a distinct memory of doing that. And I was super into it, you know. And, like, when I even got to college, I went. I was a literary fiction writer. And, um, well, I, I kind of had to be because we weren't allowed to write genre. But the kind of movement and the kind of writing that I was drawn to was very Palahniuk-esque. And... I didn't realize at the time that that is a specific style of writing. It was more just like I naturally gravitated that way. Um, so my my like early writings, often terrible, when I look back at them now, were my attempt to write in this sort of voice that Palahniuk writes in and write what what I could broadly call transgressive fiction, which is the style and movement that he writes at least as a part of. Um, So I have like a long history with this. I think I've moved away from it um, as I've I've gotten older. I've been exposed to other kinds of writing that appeal to me. Um, But there is still a core of my writing that likes this kind of thing. It likes the transgressive nature. There's like the extremity of experience and how you can find like truths about life there that's interesting to dive into. It's also a good way to like break apart norms and to analyze society. Um, and there's, you know, when you operate in this area, I think it is a powerful tool for doing that. And absolutely this book is doing that. 
Um, so yeah, that's my kind of history with Fight Club. 20-year-old, 18-year-old Luke would be much more in the camp of like, let's all hero worship Tyler Durden. Um, not fully, but like I would, you would get that vibe more from, from that version of me. Um, I am not that way now. Um, and I'm not going to be that way on this podcast. So if you're hoping for like, uh, at least for me to be sit here, just talk about how Tyler Durden's like the greatest character of all time. And, and you know, all of that, like, that's not what I'm going to be doing today. I think he's an interesting character. I just don't like, I'm not going to personally be like, yeah, Tyler Durden's ideas are all the greatest ideas ever. Well, you're already starting to touch on some things that we're going to have to mention. It's that the way that re- in reading this, first of all, I was very familiar with the film. I've seen it many times, love the film and loved it even more when I was younger in a similar way to what you're saying about the book. I, it was just, you know, I think it speaks to a, like a younger anti-establishment sort of punk rock viewpoint. I think I think it also, we, we also can't divorce it from the moment in time we were in because this book and movie came out pre 9-11. It came out before a lot of the like modern changes we've seen play out and and in many ways there's some prophetic stuff in here and he's and i think palinick was tapping into a real dissatisfaction that a lot of people feel and um i think it's important to remember that like when he wrote this and when it came out it was a different time even though it was only you know a little over 20 years ago um a lot has happened in those 20 years yeah there's that sort of like I said, this anti-establishment, I was a skater growing up and stuff like this, this sort of stuff was just like kick ass, like, like question social norms and, and do it for the sake of, and even like thinking violence was cool and all these other things that gets wrapped up in this like toxic masculinity stuff that I think the book does a good job of, uh, I, I think maybe both, you know, we're going to address the, the film when we get there next week, but uh, it does a good job of making it sort of satirical in ways and making it sort of like you shouldn't worship this person because look at this spiral that's happening, right? right. It's not just like this, oh, great, look, he, he challenges status quos and then everything goes great. It's like, obviously, it's not a model, but I think people latch onto that character because it's so, so, such a magnetic character. And so there's a lot of cult-like behavior going on with this in this oh, film absolutely, yeah. as, it, as it goes on. So it's like that slippery slope of, of like wanting to find your individuality and then also finding someone who's so so much of an individual and knows who they are and they're so strong-willed that you want to be like them and then you end up following that person. The appeal of a strong man, right? Um, I, so I want to ask you, like, what is your experience with this novel? Have you read the novel? Before? No, I've never read the novel. Cool. So yeah. that'll at least be, uh, uh, you know, a, a novel experience to you. <laughs> yep. um, before we get into it anymore and I forget other stuff. First off, <laughs> um, we want to thank our patrons for voting for this. This was a community-selected project. Um, it was our final quarterly poll of the year. Fight Club won out. It's been like a contender all year. It's been jockeying, and it finally won out. Um, and, you know, I'm delighted. This has been a project that I think is one that, like, from the jump. You know, I, I look back at, like, season one of Ink to Film when I was thir- first thinking about what it's going to be like to run a podcast that talks about adaptations. I thought we would have done Fight Club in those first year or two. You know what I mean? Like I, I never would have thought it would have taken us as long as it has to get to this project because it's such a big one. I totally agree. I mean, this was, the, you know, it's always been on the list and it's, you got David Fincher adapting it and it's such, you know, such an extreme material. And it's one of those films that like for a really long time, I looked at it as one of my favorite films. 
Um, so, so the fact that we're five years in and just covering it is, is pretty nuts. And so thanks again to our patrons for, for finally getting us to do it. Absolutely. Um, we will uh, start a whole, whole new poll uh, system next year. So be on the lookout for that if you want to try and get us to cover something else. Um, also, 250th episode. I think before we get too much farther into this, we should at least like take a second to acknowledge that. <laughs> That's a lot of episodes. You know, it's more than that if you count all of our like Patreon stuff we've done. But like as far as like the stuff that we consider episode proper, uh, this is the 250th one, um, which is a lot. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah. It's been crazy to see, you know, our development as artists individually and then also like how, how far this is and the doors that this has opened for me personally. And I think, you know, to speak for you, I know that you've said similar kinds of things. Oh, Absolutely. I got to I got to be on panels at Worldcon, um, and I think you know obviously publishing has been a part of that for me, publishing short fiction. But this podcast has absolutely been a part of that. Um, and I recently found out I'm going to be on paneling for NorwestCon next year. Um, and and once again, I think the podcast is a has a large role to play in that. So that's just a small thing, but like you know, it's a professional uh, thing for me and I'm, the stuff I'm trying to do. So. Yeah, it's been I've been very thankful for that. And not only that, I think beyond it in intangible ways, what I've learned about uh, creating, what I've learned about art and what I've learned about writing, storytelling in general, um, been it's been a lot of that has been due to this podcast, which has been very cool. I mean, I definitely think looking back, I'll always think like a lot of my professional development and, and some of the analysis that we do here is so important for creating and appreciating and and you know, getting different perspectives. And, and another thing was just like, it. you know, before the podcast, I wasn't reading as much as I did growing up. And so it's been a great excuse to continue reading a lot and, you know, flex all these muscles that we don't get to in our, our every single day. Um, this allows us to kind of flex those to, to sort of work out our minds in those ways all the time. So yeah, just really thankful for, for 250 episodes. Yeah, I appreci- appreciate it. Um, let's get into Fight Club more. I think uh, I- I'm curious. So the other thing is I don't think we really need to do much of a plot summary for this. Um, it's because plot is not super important to these kinds of books. Um, there is a plot, but it's very scattered. It's very um, sometimes it's difficult to put stuff sequentially. It's difficult to figure out what's really happening, what's not, you know, because it's kind of surreal. Um, the main our narrator has insomnia, and he's constantly like waking up in new places, and new things are happening that he doesn't even fully understand. And then the whole book itself is reinterpreted once you know the twist. And we both knew the twist going in, so our experience reading it is going to be very different than someone who maybe just read it for the first time. So. I think we just kind of hop around um, and talk about important scenes, important moments we want to discuss. There are a couple of things that jumped out to me. This idea of what we were talking about before, people latching onto the character like this. And it run, reminded me a lot of when we covered American Psycho and the yes. ways that people latch onto something like a Patrick Bateman and they see the the things that they like and the things that are the consumerist version and, and the things that the on the surface level viewing, I guess you can say, are appealing. And then there's so much more under the surface and so much more commentary being made. Um, and then also just the writing style and the way that this is sort of grappling with with difficult topics and doing it, like I said, in sort of a satirical way at times, then other times in a very like real and, and um, 
dark. It reminds me of like a Kurt Vonnegut and in the ways that you were talking about, like sort of literary. Yeah. I mean, you're touching on things that are definitely there. I saw Brett Easton Ellis and, uh, you know, I was thinking about American Psycho as being like of a kind with this book. Um, American Psycho came out a little bit before um, and is and is more about yuppie culture. Um, but and this is feels a little more blue collar to me and a little more um, anarchist anarchist but in a similar way right you're dealing with psychology there's a twist there's a um a main character who is not like you said like is sort of presented as a in a way in one way but then the book itself like the subtext of it is a is sort of a critique of that character but it's so open to interpretation that you do get a lot of people who read it and um, wind up sort of hero worshiping the main character, even if that wasn't the intent of the author. And it's funny because in this case, that's that's exactly the intent, right? Like because this character does that for everyone else in the book. Yeah. So it's not, it's only natural that I feel like some readers would would do the same. I think it's important to note that if I think if you're not digging into the subtext, you're kind of just one of these like what does he call them like space monkeys or something like yeah. It's not like he's particularly complimentary of these people, right? Of the Project Mayhem people, you know. It's interesting because I don't. I also don't want to pretend like this book isn't a proponent of a lot of the stuff that Tyler Durden is saying. Um. Because it kind of is. It just it just also is analyzing it and it's giving the inverse. Like it's it's giving the like downside to a lot of these ideas at the same time that it's propping them up. This this gets into sort of my whole analysis on it, and it's that it starts innocent enough. As crazy as it seems to have a fight club, these people are consenting. They're all finding ways to feel alive by fighting each other like this. But then it sort of spirals as as it goes on, and that's where it starts to become dangerous because it's not you're bringing in innocent people and you're you're ruining other people's lives because you feel a certain freedom has to be had and there's this idea that for me at the beginning of anarchy for the sake of freedom right they want to feel something they want to be free from this this hamster wheel that they're on and then at the end it's you get into the anarchy for the sake of destruction let's destroy the mona lisa let's ruin everything for everyone else let's upheave all of this and start over again um, without everyone consenting to that, right? Bring it all down. It's, you know, it's anti, it's not just anti-establishment, it's anti-consumerism, and I would argue anti-capitalist. Yeah. Um, largely, because that's what drives consumerism, right? Right. So early on in this, I'm like, yeah, I'm with them. I'm like, sure, let's let's get right. into it and get in a fight and like bloody up our noses and do things that are outside the status quo and, and you know, shake things right. up a little bit. But then it turns into like, yeah, go assault random people. And I'm like, whoa. Okay, there, yeah. there's some... Uh, well, it, I mean, yes, but also I think in particular you're supposed to start a fight with somebody and lose to them. <laughs> but the similar ideas go on with consumerism and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with them for the anti-capitalist stuff yeah. and I'm like, yeah, all this stuff makes sense. And then it gets to, there's a, there's a line in the sand that I think each person has to draw. And he's exploring that idea of like, you know, crossing lines. I mean, that's what we're talking about with transgressive fiction. I, I, yeah, I'm totally with you. And, and ultimately, it's like one of the reasons why I don't know how to feel about this book today and where I'm at currently. I know that I feel strongly while reading it. And I find myself agreeing with, arguing with, interrogating. You know, I'm, there's all these things that are going on in my mind while I'm reading it. Like, this is a really rich novel. I think it is a really interesting read. Even, you know, even today, even 20 years later, this is, this is I think, his magnum opus. You know, I haven't read all of his work. 
Um, but I know people who have read a lot more of it than I have. I have read Choke. Um, and I've read some of his short stories. So I've read a few others. And it feels like this is his, this is like his bread and butter. This is the thing he wants to write about. And he's finding different ways to write about it. I read some of Survivor, I think it's called. So I've read some of his stuff. Um, and it all, it's all similar. It's of a kind with this. And um, if you want to look for like the best distillation of it, this still might be it. So um, I don't know. I wonder if someone who like maybe is like a big fan would would disagree with that. But uh, this isn't a bad one, at least for it. And it's his debut, which is always very interesting to me. And like you said, he maybe was a big reason why this sort of fiction is around. You said he kind of cultivated what would be known as this. So you're that's a great segue. Because I want to talk about Chuck Palahniuk as a writer and the history behind writing this novel. Um, and th- before we get into more of like our specific thoughts about the subject matter. So Charles Michael, a.k.a. Chuck Palahniuk, was born in 1962. He is an American freelance journalist and novelist who describes his work as transgressional fiction. He has published 19 novels, three nonfiction books, two graphic novels, and two adult coloring books, as well as several short stories. So Palahniuk was born in uh, Pasco, Washington. He grew up living in a mobile home in Burbank, Washington. His parents separated when he was 14 years old, and they subsequently divorced, often leaving him with his three siblings to live with their maternal grandparents in a cattle ranch in eastern Washington. Uh, Palahniuk would go on to attend the University of Oregon in his 20s and graduate in journalism in 1986. He would begin writing for the local newspaper for a short while, Uh, then working for Freightliner Trucks as a diesel mechanic, continuing into his writing career, took off, and he quit his job. He did volunteer work for a homeless shelter and volunteered at a hospice as an escort, providing transportation for terminally ill people, taking them to support group meetings. He ceased volunteering upon the death of a patient to whom he had grown attached. Uh, Palahniuk began writing fiction in his mid-30s, and by his account, he started writing while attending workshops for writers that were hosted by Tom Spanbauer, which he attended to f- meet new friends. Spanbauer largely inspired Palahniuk's minimalistic writing style. So Spanbauer is a proponent of what um, I've heard described as Gordon Lish, uh, his style of writing, which goes back to this minimalist style. Um, and what is often called dangerous writing by by uh, Tom Spanbauer. And I can give you like a couple breakdowns of what that is. Um, it is a very specific kind of writing. And like we were talking, like you were mentioning earlier, how it feels kind of like counterculture. I totally think it does. And one of the reasons I was drawn to it, I've always been drawn to that kind of stuff. And when I got to University of Florida and I started studying literary fiction, I immediately was drawn to the counter of that. But it's interesting because it's a counter of it, yet still within that world. So it's still very much a literary movement, yet it's the literary movement that is sort of taboo, it's shocking, um, and it's a lot of, like, polite society academics don't like it. Um, And it's always had, there's always been, like, sort of an undercurrent of this, and then it uh, got propped up uh, by this Gordon Lish uh, writer. The emphasis on writing dangerously was specific that uh, you should write something that personally scares or embarrasses you in order to explore and artistically express those fears honestly. Um, It's written usually in first person um, and often deals with subjects that are cultural taboos. It also is very minimalistic, 
focusing on reducing adverbs, um, no specific measurements. There's some really interesting, like specific techniques employed in this kind of writing. Um, in specific, uh, instead of using the word theme, they use the, the word chorus to talk about sort of the idea of the story. And in this mode, a story is like a symphony, building and building, but never losing the original melody line. All characters and scenes, although they may seem dissimilar, illustrate some aspect of the story's theme, aka chorus. Um, so you're sort of like bringing back the core message over and over again in these like within the melody of the story. Um, there's a technique called the burnt tongue, which is a way of saying something but saying it wrong and twisting it in a way that slows the reader down and invites them to read more closely. So I would agree that like this style of writing encourages you to read slowly and really think about everything that's being said. And apparently that's this burnt tongue technique. Well, and you were mentioning the the idea of like the theme recurring in that way throughout, while maybe not necessarily in the same context. And I think that's clear in this novel. Yeah, absolutely. If that's the point you're making, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I think all of this is present in this novel and in Palahniuk's uh, work in general. Um, another, another aspect of this is what is called the recording angel, which means that the author is writing without passing any judgment whatsoever on the characters. And nothing is fed to the reader as being right or wrong. And instead, it's only described in a way that makes judgment occur in the mind of the reader. So it's asking the reader to judge it without the text itself presenting judgment. And I mean, there's there's some situations that I see in this and I think of other stories like, for example, Jesus's son that we read. Mm -hmm. You're sort of seeing an unflinching look at some depiction maybe you know and it is fiction maybe based on experiences that that person had but still something that in some ways can be hard to read at, at times or like uh, but but it is real in the way that life is weird and and can't can't really usually be defined by what kind of narrative structure we would think you know it seems stranger than fiction obviously is a is a phrase that comes to mind where like the real world tends to be more you know, weird than you could even imagine. Yeah. So this all ties into what I would call the uh, show don't tell writing advice that you'll hear commonly thrown around, but it's taken to an extreme here. Like it, it is, it is the bread and butter of this uh, style of writing. Um, another thing that this style of writing does is it really engages with the body. It, it wants the reader to feel things viscerally and identify things like in their own body as they read things to connect with it on a like physical level. Um, and I think the fight club of this really works for that because there is so many physical descriptions of pain and of just visceral moments that invite you in. Well, like the hole in his cheek yeah. and the, the burning with the flakes on the, on the hand, the yeah. kiss, the basically lie, burn. lie burn on the, on the hand. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. And, and I think that all ties into this style. There's just, yeah, there's a lot to hear in this style of writing that I love. And I find that I do like employing a lot of this in my own writing. I just, I don't know if I, I just can't. Some people who write this are very militant about it being the best and only way to write. And I just, I, I guess I'm just not there. Like I've seen so many other ways of writing work really, really well. And they evoke different things. And 
it feels limiting to me to try and say that for writing to be good, it must be like this. I just don't agree with that, but I see the appeal of a lot of it, and I do use a lot of these techniques myself. So, Yeah, I think both of us are the kind of people that I, I like enough variety to where I don't think I could see myself being stuck in one particular mindset of like, this is how you write. This is the correct way to do something. I, I would want to explore all avenues. Right. So let's talk about uh, the novel itself, Fight Club, and how it came to be. So Palahniuk once had an altercation while camping, and though he returned to work bruised and swollen, his co-workers avoided asking him what had happened on the camping trip. Their reluctance to know what happened in his private life inspired him to write Fight Club. So that that's interesting, right? Like, we t- always talk about, like, seeds for ideas, and, and I just like the idea of, like, he got in a fight, went to work, and just, like, nobody asked about it. It's interesting. Yeah, because you could see how that might be the case, how people might not want to ask. And there is that social barrier, that social norm that can be really weird sometimes. And I do find myself in in random situations thinking, like, what if this happened just now, right now? Or what if, you know, how would all of these people react? And this, like, I don't know, polite society would have you just most of the time maybe just ignore it. And then that feels disingenuine. And that's sort of the root of a lot of this, right? Is like being genuine and being a real person and not sort of just floating through life. And the artificiality of society really and like social norms and how people don't connect with each other um, and frustration at that and like trying to find ways to connect, I think is at the heart of this book. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not, the ways that are pursued here are healthy or good is I think again, left to the mind of the reader. Um, But that is ultimately what I think our narrator is after, right? Like he wants connection. He wants to feel alive. He wants to feel close to people. Yeah. Um, And, and is willing to do a lot to get that feeling. (laughs) Um, So I, I also read that invisible monsters, which is a book I have not read, um, but was later released in 1999. I think it's his third published novel was his first manuscript he wrote. And he was unable to find um, a publisher or literary agent with that novel. It was being rejected largely for being too obscene and too transgressive, um, too explicit, like a lot of those kind of things, right? And he would go on to write a short story, um, Fight Club, that was a seven-page short story that he published in a compilation called The Pursuit of Happiness in uh, in 1995, but he would later expand it to novel length, uh, and the original short story became what is chapter six of this novel. The novel would be published in 1996. Now, I saw that he still had trouble finding a literary agent, and I think he didn't get a literary agent until after the book was published, or at least at some point along the way of it getting published. He, he basically was unable to find representation because of the nature of the book, um, but was still able to find someone willing to publish it, which is, you know, props, props to him for doing that. Um, so, so it sounds like this was, you know, more difficult than you might imagine to, to get this to get this started and to launch his career. Um, he did eventually sign with a literary agent who would help him sell the movie rights right after the novel came out. Um, and, you know, obviously getting the movie adaptation by Fincher a few years after it came out would launch him into stardom. Later on, the book would be republished with additional forewords and afterwards written by Palahniuk. 
And he would write some more interesting things about this that I think we should touch on. So he, in his words, he says, bookstores were full of books like the Joy Luck Club and the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and How to Make an American Quilt. These were all novels that presented a social model for women to be together, but there was no novel that presented a new social model for men to share their lives. He later explains, really what I was writing was just The Great Gatsby, updated a little. It was apostolic fiction, where a surviving apostle tells the story of his hero. There are two men and a woman, and one man, the hero, is shot to death. Uh, One critic has noted that this essay can be seen as Palahniuk's way of interpreting his own novel. According to to this critic, Palahniuk's essay emphasizes the communicative and romantic elements of the novel while it de-emphasizes its transgressive elements. And I agree with that. Like this is the, you know when to hear him talk about it in this way focuses on certain things and and shifts focus away from certain other things. In interviews, the writer has said that he is still approached by people wanting to know the location of the nearest fight club. Palahniuk <laughs> insists there is no such real organization, but he has heard of real fight clubs, some said to have existed before the novel. In the the novel Project Mayhem is lightly based on the Cacophony Society, of which Palahniuk is a member and other events derived from his stories told to him. So I did a little bit of look into, uh, looking into the Cacophony Society, which is just like a loose organization of anarchist-type people who do, like, social pranks of varying, you know, disruption. And um, apparently there are, like, chapters all over the West Coast, at least, and including in Portland. And, um, oh, I, I guess I should also say, like, I live in Portland, Oregon, and Chuck lives in Portland, Oregon, and he is a well-known figure in this literary scene here. Um, so, you know, he, he's he's a local writer, which is interesting to, to talk about <laughs> for me now. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, I also have found myself thinking a lot about, like, and I don't really know a ton about this, but the Anarchist Cookbook, mm-hmm. the idea of all these things that you can make dirty bombs and, like, all this other stuff. And clearly he had to be... It does feel a little bit like he's given a lot of instructions for how to you know, make napalm and stuff like that. Right, <laughs> like, you can, right. like mix, mix explosives. Which isn't, it's not difficult information to get, yeah. but it's just like sort of all collecting it all. He and... doesn't give exact measurements. Um, so maybe that helps, but uh, yeah, it, there's some, there's some stuff in here for sure. I I don't know. I mean, I assume a lot of it works. I, you know, I'm not going to try it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing he's noted is that uh, pranks such as food tampering have been repeated by fans of the book. Uh, and he has documented this in, in personal essays, uh, especially the one called Monkey Think, Monkey Do in the book Stranger Than Fiction, True Stories um, that came out in 2004. Um, he even got pranked by the uh, Cacophony Society at one of his own readings. Um, so, it, it's you know, this has gone on to be this whole thing, and I think it's a little bit ironic and maybe, maybe just apropos that this story and movie ended up getting such a cult following that became diehards and it grew into something that is almost bigger than and out of control of Chuck himself, much like Project Mayhem does in this book to where a point, there's a point where like, you know, our narrator can't even step in and shut it down. There's been too many things created along the way to prevent that from happening. And, um, I'm not saying that he wants to do that, you know, in real life, but it is interesting that it's gotten such a, it's got its own momentum and its own sort of characteristic to it that has become 
larger than life and and is sort of out of control of any one person. Yeah, it's funny because I think most of the time as an author, you want this, right? I think almost every time you want this, like something to strike a chord with with the culture and and become like a touchstone for a lot of people, which this is. Um, and then and then you find yourself getting pranked at your own events and stuff, and you're just like like <laughs> like I guess you know he wrote a story that is inviting a little bit of that in in a sense, and you know I, I think it's it's interesting. I'm sure I'm sure he appreciates the passion, but sometimes like hopefully he's not getting pranked often. Let's say yeah, that he said know. once they did it, so <laughs> hopefully it's not the kind of thing he has to deal with a lot. But again, he's being asked where the local, closest local Fight Club is. He's kind of a Tyler Durden narrator type character like himself like you said in some ways yeah I don't know him personally I've never actually met him um but I know people who I know people who know him yeah I'll just say that so um you know he's I would say that like the perception through his fiction of who he is is somewhat accurate but also not the whole story right like there is also a different person under there as is the case with most authors and artists right yeah so, so yeah, that's the person behind it, and uh, let's talk about the novel itself. And and one thing I want to talk about, I think a, a good opening topic, is the nature of transgressive fiction and how effective or ineffective or, or what we think it is. And, and, and how do you feel about the transgressive nature of this? Of this book? I mean, if I can be entirely honest, there was a certain period of time where shocking and this sort of stuff was what I sought out and, and was the thing that affected me most. I found it to be engaging. I found it to be, you know, counterculture and, and just like, you know, makes you feel like you're, you're alive in some ways. So if, you put, if I put myself in a certain time period with this sort of story, I think it hits exactly with what he was attempting to do. But like I said before, the danger of a story like this just becomes when it does have a life of its own, when people are hero worshiping a Patrick Bateman or a Tyler Durden, I think it gets a little scary for the people who are understanding the full message of the story. Uh, So overall, I think like, I I love to read a story like this because it is so unique and it's so interesting and the the characters all the way through the end of the novel, it's interesting, it's engaging, it's, it pulls you in and it keeps you guessing. Uh, but if you were to, I guess, extrapolate it out and be like, is this is is this sort of fiction good for the overall population? I think it's interesting to note that when we were young, 20, like, you know, teenagers and 20 somethings, this sort story sort of affected us more. And as we've aged out of it, I wonder what like modern day current, you know, 19 year old kids feel about this. And, and if they do feel as like called to action in a sense that that, like, you know what I mean? Is this. Is it dangerous? I don't. I don't think inherently, but I think that obviously there's a possibility, and and so I guess I like the idea of this art existing. I want it to continue to exist. I just want people to be aware of some of the side effects. So beyond, so 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 you're presenting sort of the idea of like this story might have detrimental effects to society, but beyond that, if we can dive into more like your own personal morality. How do you find this lining up today when you're reading it? Did, where did you find things within it that you were agreeing with, disagreeing with vehemently? Like anything that, that was standing out to I you? I mean, I, I said as much, yeah, early on the idea of being trapped in this in this sort of life cycle where you're working for your possessions and you know, you all you just want to make enough money to buy things that obviously like advertisers would have you believe you need. And, and, and all of that 
it just feels really it's sickening you know the ways that there are people who live there i think even that it's said in the novel like people of generations of people have come and gone and haven't really lived because they're so interested in chasing that you know keeping up with the joneses and and yeah. trying to consumerism to in especially american culture has been presented to us as a way of self-actualization right like as mm-hmm. the goal of life to be obtain as many things as you can and you know surround yourself with them <laughs> i guess and then and then and then die like a yep. pharaoh maybe have it buried with you i don't know <laughs> right um yeah. it, it doesn't make a lot of sense and like there's, you know, yeah, there are creature comforts, there are things to like about it, but also, like, when you step away from it and analyze it, it does look pretty empty. And that's, I think, something at the core of this novel. And ultimately, like, where where my modern sensibilities are is that it's somewhere in between. It's yeah. moderation and everything all the way through. Yeah it's, yeah, it's almost like if you take anything to an extreme, it can start to look ridiculous. Right. So it's this situation where, you know, I agree with a lot of that. I, I think I can look around. And it's also this this idea of being sort of self-absorbed enough to think that we're out, you know, we can see the matrix and we know and look around and see others who are really caught up in it and, and you know, not being aware of how much we actually are in it sometimes. And, you know, I, I, it's a it's this whole vicious cycle that I think we're, we're trying to navigate, especially like you said, here in America. And then you know, that that also goes into other things. Like, why does society do this? Why are the expectations that? And a lot of that, I, I found myself at least, you know, humoring and questioning along the way. Um, and like the idea of outside of the pain, would I, would I consider doing something so anti, like what would be perceived as normal as going to a fighting den and, and punching somebody? Maybe. I don't know. I think I'm like open minded enough to to see how that would change my perception. But uh, I think it starts to very quickly. I start to see my own morality line, like how far I'm willing to go with a lot of this stuff. And and I think I'm curious enough to, to you know, question it. And I'd be probably willing to do some of it. But then <laughs> it, there comes a there comes a point where I'm like, yeah, that's my line. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when when I was in high school, we would do we would have boxing matches um some weekends and my friends and I you know when I would get together in someone's yard and had boxing gloves and we would fight we would fight each other I've seen VHS yeah. VHS footage take of, some of a lot of, of this yeah um <laughs> so I can't say like oh no I'd never do that because <laughs> I definitely did um but I don't you know I wouldn't do it today um you know I have no desire for that and and I do think there's certain uh, sort of adolescent misguided aggression that it appeals to Outside of the fighting, what other things are you? Yeah, did what other things stood out to you as things that you did sort of want to want to still analyze and question? Yeah, so I want to talk. I mean, I think the what comes down to like the heart of this is masculinity. True. Yeah. Um, I think it re- over and over again we're analyzing it, and to the point of it almost exclusion of half of society because I feel like this book is at best dismissive of femininity and women and at worst misogynistic um, and and outright hostile towards women um, it, often femininity and like repeatedly descriptions of being castrated and, and your balls being your like most important thing and like there's all this like analysis of being made feminine as being a destruction of self 
So, so much of the self here is tied to that masculine ideal and a masculine ideal that is hypersexual, you know, uh, hyper aggressive, not concerned with modern society, with helping people, with anything that's not like it's very selfish. Um, anything that is not selfish is seen as a weakness. Um, and, and this is sort of Tyler Durden's manifesto. But we also have to remember that we're being shown this through the perspective of the narrator, who is highly skeptical of a lot of what's going on. Now, he admits he is drawn to it, and he, he buys into it, and he feels like he's almost a twin with Tyler Durden at times. But as the novel progresses, he gets more and more distance from it, and he starts to have second thoughts a lot more and more. I think some of the main places that this turns up to is is this perspective of what would my life be like with a patriarchal figure and what does it mean to grow up without a father and with a father and what does it mean to be a man and and like well the idea that you're a christian man your ideal your ideal of god is your father is a father figure and so if you grew up without a father figure then where does that lead? You're you? looking for authority or your boss at work or yeah. someone like Tyler Durden. Right. And, yeah. And it's very anti-boss, right? In fact, uh, in the book, uh, Tyler Durden kills the narrator's boss, um, <laughs> which I, I don't think happens in the movie. Um, so so uh, there are a few differences, although otherwise it's very similar. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to get get at is like that question of masculinity in my own life. I feel like I have come to a very different place in like how I reckon with pressures to be masculine in society, what I'm comfortable with and what I see as like being able to be happy and open with emotions and yet still be masculine is a tricky thing because of how much we've been conditioned to see masculinity through a certain lens. And unfortunately, Tyler Durden's version of masculinity, in my opinion, doesn't help the problem. And in fact, it, it kind of exacerbates it. It's sad, but it's like you take you're taking the the toxicity of of masculinity and how it's been co-opted by consumerist culture to put pressure on people. And you're taking that pressure and that ideal and you're trying to strip away all of the modern parts of it that have co-opted it and bring it back to a more quote unquote natural, I guess, like base aggressive hunter gatherer style masculinity. But I don't think that is the right path for modern men. And in, in some ways that's a regression and we should embrace a changing definition of what it means to be a man and how we can use that to feel content and self-actualized. Yeah, and for me this comes down to the the idea of masculinity is being is being decided on by society, right? And so this whole thing is about why is society saying this? Why is society saying that? Why is society telling me this is what a man is? Why can't why can't I be whatever I want to be and still be considered, you know, a man or be considered masculine or what, what, what have you. Um, but I agree with you. I think society has progressed some too in terms of what, because ultimately whether or not 
Tyler Durden's version of masculinity or the consumerist version of masculinity, whether or not those either of those is, you know, better. I think we've seen society start to be more accepting of different types of masculinity, at least a little, at least some. And I would think that as time goes on, more progressive ideals tend to come come up as as a society uh, continues on. So I, I know I would think that, you know, even 10 years from now, our perception of masculinity will continue to change and be more accepting. And I don't know, maybe that's just my progressive sort of positive outlook on things. But typically such a snowflake. James. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, that term was um, whether or not coined by Palahniuk, um, popularized for sure here. And um, it, it is often credited to him as creating it. And in fact, he, he I wonder if he's I wonder if he's a fan of how it's been how it's been used in the last five years. Well, he's at least still a fan of the term. I've heard him say that he still oh, really? he still stands behind it. He thinks I mean, this is a guy who writes transgressive fiction. Right. So he often points to his critics as being sort of snowflakes in the sense that they <laughs> will attack him for being too transgressive and, you know, offensive. And he finds that people are too thin-skinned and too unwilling. To He's walking the same tightrope that I think comedians are trying to say they are as well, right, currently. And, like, this is the job, right, is to tell. If he's telling transgressive sto- stories, then it's the job to go really far. Yeah. Comedians, they tell jokes that are offensive and they go there. And, and there's this whole there's this whole conversation yeah. being had, I think, in society right now about, like, w- w- at what stage can you say what things? And it's, it's kind of difficult to navigate. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think if you're like, oh, I write transgressive fiction you should expect a significant amount of backlash and just be okay with that right yeah and you know i also look at the concept of this like you you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake and and it's sort of a way of discounting personal pushback as being sort of silly and naive and and it's sort of saying you're not important um and it's you know I think there is some value to that, but it is also interesting that the person who's saying it is usually using it as a way to protect their own personal feelings and viewpoints on the world, and, and in a way of insulating themselves from criticism. It is a way of shutting down criticism, and the reason you shut down criticism is because you don't want to have to engage with something emotionally as possibly being, you know, inappropriate or harmful or what have you. So in, in, in a way, you are, you are only outing yourself as the very thing you're criticizing because it is your own thin-skinnedness that is unwilling to engage with criticism, right. which is, is often leading to people to accuse someone else of being a snowflake. You know, I think these ideas were probably a lot more novel in the mid '90s, right? The, oh, absolutely, the, and that—that's—I do want to emphasize that as well. And you think of it in modern in modern contemporary society. I think it's interesting to make the comparison here that in the story, this idea of like people calling people snowflakes and and being so worried about being anti-society and all this other stuff end up in sort of like a pseudo. Um, fascist sort of scenario and i'm like okay Cult, terrorist organization <laughs> you know right and yeah. and so it's like what is that saying about you if you're like yeah i call people snowflakes and and subscribe to this sort of mentality and and where where we're at currently it's like okay and you see them 
Like whenever, if you're a part of an organization <laughs> and one of the rules is don't ask questions. And don't criticize. And and the leader is not to be questioned. <laughs> um, those are about as big a red flags as you can possibly see in any organization. So um, run if you see that because that's not good. And that's, you know, that's two of the tenets of Project Mayhem, which grows sort of organically out of Fight Club. Um, and the idea that, you know... There's this dehumanization that happens. It really is a very clever way of showing how cult indoctrination can happen and how terrorists can indoctrinate and um, how strong personalities can, can you know, influence so many people. And, and that's why I was saying in many ways this book feels prophetic to me because it was written at a time before 9-11, before you know, uh, the rise of the far right and fascism as far as like being a mainstream political movement in our country. And it's ironic that this novel is in some ways held up by a lot of those people. Because of course, if you look at it, like, sure, okay. Um, it is, it is anti, like you, you, there are lines about like fuck endangered species, recycling's bullshit. You know, we shouldn't care about our effect on the world like a lot of that is there but also it's presented as like a because the damage is already done and the mega corporations that are actually in control don't give a shit they are the ones who are doing these 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 equations right that our narrator works in where he's deciding whether or not to do a recall like that's the kind of stuff that is actually running the world. And the idea that our personal actions, you know, with like our individual recycling or whatever it is, um, is making a dent is kind of ludicrous. But not for the reason that people, you know what I mean, that you might think. It's like, no, it's because it's not big enough. And, and it's really like the capitalism behind it all that is causing a lot of this. So if you're anti this stuff, you should be anti-capitalist. And I guess it falls down to the individual what what you think the response is because Tyler Durden's response is really like a libertarian wet dream of of a destruction of society where it's all about just like being a survivor in a post apocalyptic world where you're like homesteading in the ruins of a city um, literally is described as like what Project Mayhem wants and if you're not someone who wants that. But you also think consumerism and capitalism is kind of bullshit. Where does that leave you, right? Um, and and the book, this book at least, doesn't seem to have any answers. But I think the questions are valid, and I think uh, we should ask ourselves: Okay, if this is all bullshit, but we don't want to go the way of Project Mayhem, you know, what do we do? It's also that sort of give up mentality, right? Like it's all already ruined, so it's over. Let's give up. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen a lot of people describe this book as nihilist, and I think there is a strong sort of nihilist. Like nothing matters, meaning is bullshit. We're all just you know rotting refuse, whatever. We're in part of the same compost heap, and all these all these lines that are iconic. And don't get me wrong, it's interesting to think in that space, right? Sure. It's interesting to at least humor and and be interested to to question these sort of things, and I don't know, make a make a decision on each thing as as a, on a case by case basis. You know, you know, there's like so many famous lines like "You are not your job. You are not how much money you have in your in the bank. You are not the car you drive. You are not the contents of your wallet. You are not your fucking." 
stinking khakis. You are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. So like, there's so many like good, like that is such a powerful line and it is a rejection of consumerist culture. Um, but okay, then what are you? And if the answer is you are an animal full of aggression who should be just taking what they can with no regard for any other living being, um, that's where you lose me. You know what I mean? Like, I agree with the first part of that, but then with a Tyler Durden answer, I disagree with. But what's interesting is the narrator also kind of disagrees with it eventually. Um, but there is no other alternative really given in this book. I, I, again, I think it was raising some some questions sure. that maybe weren't as present in the in the zeitgeist at the time. And tapping into a dissatisfaction. I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the American man. And you look at like all the mass shootings and all the, you know, there's a lot of violence that has been occurring um, with American men. And... I think Palnook was touching on something that was going to shape the next 20, 30 years after this novel came out and, and was prophetic in a way because it's like that dissatisfaction is present and it is a large force in our politics and in our modern lives. And um, ultimately, consumerism isn't enough for people and they're lashing out and they're seeking other ways of validation. M- masculinity has not cannot survive in the classic sense that it's been seen as and i don't think it can be co-opted by companies that are just trying to sell us clothing and try and sell us you know images that's not the answer either so i agree that like that's bullshit and we need to find another way to be comfortable in our own bodies and our own tendencies i guess as like living beings um but also find a way to modernize it that does fit within the modern world and isn't a destructive force, ultimately. Um, at least personally, I don't think that that's... I, I, you know, it, I don't think being destructive is the, the answer, I guess, in every sense. Like, certain things should be destroyed, don't get me wrong, but I just mean, like, generally destructive, shitty people who hurt and who, you know, commit acts of violence. And it just, like, ultimately, that's not the answer, like, I think right. there's got to be something else we can find here. So moving into other topics, I had a couple of other things I want to mention. Um, interesting point of views and uh, the use of like first person, second person kind of at yeah. times. Does kind of talk to us a lot. The narrator feels like they do. You, yeah. you're doing this, mm-hmm. you're doing that. I, I thought it was a really fun way to frame it. Having the beginning of the story be the end and having yeah. all of it be sort of... Re- Starts with the gun in the mouth, which again is that, that like... Lo- like sensory body stuff and and just the way that it moves through the story in that way and we have we kind of know where it's heading but we don't know how we get there and there's some things that we don't understand along the way and who tyler is we think you know from the first chapter a great first chapter in terms of like gripping someone and pulling you into the story and getting you invested in media res they call that where you're clearly in the middle of something you don't fully understand and then you're going to find out what how you got there and then uh yeah progressing through like this idea like the morbid sort of way that he goes about going to these these meetings that are for people who emotionally are damaged and having to go through a lot of things and uh, like dealing with extreme grief and dealing with their mortality and then he's just there to sort of get an edge on of that and feel alive right right i mean he's he's as we've talked about like this character cannot feel genuine connections with people he cannot feel genuine emotion everything's artificial in his life and 
when he goes to these meetings and people are act like people think he's dying, he's like people for the first time listen to you, and people for the first time like he for the first time he's a- able to cry, which is itself a damning criticism of masculinity in a sense too, right? If that's not allowing you to be able to cry, if it's not allowing you to be able to connect with your emotions, if you don't feel like you can have genuine conversations with people, why? Right. And like the answer of the book just seems to be like it's impossible, but I don't think it is personally. Um, But I can see why someone might be drawn to this. It is interesting that Chuck Palahniuk like literally did some of this stuff. Like he he worked with hospice and he befriended like ill patients, terminally ill patients. Um, You know, these meetings, I'm sure he he saw a lot of them, whether or not he attended them. I don't know. Um, So he's got firsthand experience with this. And I'm sure there is an element of. Yeah, people cut through the bullshit when everybody thinks they're dying and they're willing to, like, get real. Like, I'm sure that does happen, but I also don't think that's impossible to have in your day-to-day life if you cultivate that kind of... It strikes me that a lot of these characters could do with some therapy, right? Like, how much much helpful... (laughs) You, snowflake! (laughs) How much help could be done just by... These people are looking for these genuine connections. Well, you have to dig internally for that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Not go... Like, he's looking for the answers elsewhere, and not willing to like sort of dig into what's actually going on. And, you know, there's this whole um, what, he can't sleep at night. He's always up and how that obviously threads into all the stuff with Tyler Durden and, and the way that that could be affecting your emotional and your mental like state and where you're at day to day. It is cool how at the heart of this novel that's all about like a literary exploration and of of, of this idea and this this satire of of society and all this stuff at the heart of it there is still this like clever twist that is intricately planned and laid out and there are hints throughout that you can see and there are seeds and there there are so many little things that he does to set it up um there's so many moments and like honestly I was wondering like openly while I was reading this I was like if this came out today, which is impossible to answer because I have the experience of having read Fight Club now, but like, I don't know if we could be fooled in the same way now. I don't know. I found myself thinking too, like at what point- It's so obvious to me now, but like, yeah, I know it, but like there are so many times in this narration that I'm like, wow, that was a really obvious hint. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's almost impossible to tell, but I found myself thinking that a lot too. Like at what point do I really, really know- like, at what point am I thinking something weird is going on, which is the entire book? Yeah, there but are then, a lot of moments. But then eventually, where are you like, like, you know, it's just there's too many to to not pick up on it, I would think. And then I think around halfway to three fourths of the way through the novel, it's it becomes like pretty much entirely clear. Um, yeah. But I, I, I will admit the first the very first time I saw the movie, I was surprised when the twist happened. I think. Yeah, I think that that is the case for everyone, though, probably. Yeah. I th- I think I was as well. Yeah, I would have been I would have been probably fourteen because I did I do think I saw it the year it came out. I think a story like this resonates with people when the twist works too, right? I think that that twist worked for most people who probably saw it then. You know, but you're right. I mean, I think our main characters clearly got like a clinical depression that he's struggling with, has insomnia and other mental health problems. Clearly, that he's having, um, and the, his fucking job is going to drive anyone to depression. So that's a problem. Right. Right. Like like there is no outlet. He seems to have no real personal relationships with anybody. Right. Like he lives this nomadic lifestyle. He has no real home. And his one home he does have is full of artificial sort of signals of success that don't really mean anything to him. 
Um, so yeah, I think a lot of people identify with that when they read this, and they, a lot of people are sort of feeling hurt and feeling depressed, and and you know, I think there's a lot for you to latch onto if you come into this book with a lot of this dissatisfaction with life and society. And I think everybody has that, right? Everyone has a certain level that they can relate with some of the stuff going on. They're like, oh, I feel like day to day I'm on the hamster wheel. I'm, you know, I'm doing all the stuff that feels unnecessary at times. But I, I do. We got to talk about Marla, too, because I just. Yeah, wanna, I was about to bring up Marla because we you know, you mentioned already the character. You would want something of substance, more of substance with this character, right? There's like, she she's the only woman really in this book that gets any relegated to a role of basically just like being at the whims of Tyler or the narrator, depending on what's going on. Um, but I think when you dig into it, there is a character here that's interesting and, and complex. Yeah, broken, just as broken as our narrator in many ways. I would like to see more of it and explore her story some more, you know. And then ultimately, they're they're kind of. I don't know how to, they're disingenuine, but like they're going to these meetings and they're kind of like preying on these people's. Yeah, she's doing like, the same thing that the narrator's doing. Right. But then ultimately it comes full circle and she's going through the same things and how that can sort of like reality can set in, in a, in a situation like this. And you can understand and I, I don't know, it starts to change your perspective. It is really interesting how he at first like is angry at her. So angry. He's furious with her for fake, for being a faker and for being there. And in many ways, it's the way he's furious with himself, right? And also, I think the part part of it is that she's a woman doing this, and so he he's there's this, a bit of like a how dare you? Well, and he he feels self conscious trying to do his normal shtick with her there because I think he immediately wants to like impress her slash also well she knows he's lying so right. someone there knows that he's not supposed to be there at the same time that he knows she's so one thing I was gonna so I had this whole. Like first half of the book, I thought I was going to bring this this theory into this episode and I was going to come at you with this theory and I was going to like explore it. And it was going to be a, a book only theory because I don't think this holds up in the movie. But by the end of it, I think there's enough there was enough evidence to discount it to where I did. Ultimately, I wasn't like going to come in like gung ho about it. But for a while, I was starting to think maybe Marlo was also a personality. I thought about that. Yeah. There was, I feel like there's some evidence, at least early in the book, that that could be the case. Now, eventually, I do think we get definitive answers that she's not. But even within the, if, if, if within the fiction of the novel, she is a separate character, that doesn't discount the sort of thematic chorus as, as, as you know, the, the terminology might like us to use of the idea of like different facets of self and how to me Marla does seem like a different facet of the narrator's personality even if within the fiction the world of the fiction she's not actually a personality of his she's a separate person like it, it all feels like pieces of Chuck of Chuck Palahniuk in some ways and like different ways he's exploring being broken and the ways that people try and find connection and she is that too she's doing the same thing um, in, in her own way and the way they all they all, all their attitudes towards death right as this like they all are sort of suicidal and they're all obsessed with death and obsessed with cancer and they they purport to want it and to welcome it and yet both demonstrate they don't want it or you know what I mean like they both demonstrate that they like she's actually afraid of getting cancer 
Right. And there comes a time when their survival, like uh, I'm even thinking about when he's in the car, like trying to yank on the wheel with the mechanic driving. And he eventually like, you know, he wants to survive. And then other people want to survive when they say they want to die. And it's sort of this thing where putting your money where your mouth is when like when it comes time to actually confront it and face it, they seem to not actually want it, but they just go around saying it for a while. And, And like that comes back to the question of like what it means to be what it what it means not only, I guess not what it means to be alive but what what meaning can be found while being alive <laughs> um and if our world has no intrinsic meaning if our lives have no intrinsic meaning if we are just chaotic manifestations of the universe that has been spit out and our consciousness is sort of an accident and we're able to be self-aware of that and understand it and perceive the universe and think about the universe. In some ways, we are a manifestation of the universe itself, right? The question becomes like, what does it all mean? And if it, and if if behind it all there is no greater meaning, should we all just seek destruction? Should we all just like, if there's no meaning, definitive meaning, is it all bullshit? Should we all just welcome oblivion? And the book seems to say yes, even as the characters often don't go that far and are unwilling to go that far. And this is something I've thought about a lot throughout my life because I do tend to subscribe to that viewpoint as far as like I don't think there is a lot of larger, greater meaning. However, I would argue that that frees us to determine our own meaning for our lives. And that meaning that we create can be just as powerful, if not more powerful than some sort of grand overarching meaning laid down to us by some sort of God. So ultimately I disagree that because there's not a greater meaning to everything. um, I disagree with the idea that we should then welcome destruction Instead, I think we welcome creation. I think we find our own meanings and we embrace that freedom in a way that isn't destructive. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and the pursuit of finding meaning can also be meaning, right? You can find meaning in that and, and using your life to find what brings you joy and what makes you feel fulfilled in ways, right? And, and like, so that pursuit almost feels to me like part of the, the whole puzzle. Yeah. And And I don't think the idea that like, Maybe helping others brings you satisfaction and brings you joy. Yeah, or maybe it doesn't and you find something else, right? Maybe it doesn't, but also like if it does, that doesn't make you lesser than or somehow weak, which I would think this argu- this novel seems to claim. I do think it's really interesting that the mark on his hand is a kiss put there by Tyler and Marla also has one. Again, there was a there was a lot at least in the first half of the book there was a lot where I was like, "Oh, this actually she actually could share a body with him and like all this stuff." But I think a bunch of people do though. Like eventually like a a bartender has it on his hand. No, too, yes, yeah. they do, do. But I love that. I think that's a really powerful image because it is a kiss. It is an intimacy. It is a closeness that that Tyler has where in in, in a, almost a romantic gesture and yet it is the most pain that people have ever felt and it leaves a scar in the shape of that kiss and so the idea of being burned by this guy's attention 
and having scarring you. I don't know. That's powerful, man. That's like, uh, there are people like that, right? Where it's like, they're so magnetic, yet they're so destructive. And Tyler is absolutely that for, for these characters. So I think one other thing we should probably talk about is um, sexuality here, because Tyler and the narrator are both heterosexual men. And in fact, as far as I can tell, everybody is that we deal with here. But um, Chuck Palahniuk is not in real life. Now, I don't know his history of like being like if he was if he was out or not as being I think he's homosexual, bisexual, perhaps. I, I'm not really sure, but certainly not purely hetero. And, and I think it is interesting to look at this novel in through that lens. And like, what can we can what can we say about it here? Because. It's it, it almost seems afraid to get into any sort of homoeroticism. And the only homoeroticism that's here is sort of subtextual. And you can look at like Tyler and the narrator's relationship as being sort of romantic. And when you look at it that way, it makes a lot of sense when the narrator gets very jealous of Marla, almost as if worried that she is taking away Tyler from him and that that, that is his like romantic interest. Um, but... I think most hetero men who are reading this and loving this movie are not engaging with it in that way at all. Yeah, I do think that there are some times, especially if you think of Tyler more as a physical, like before the twist, the ways that they're interacting, the ways that they're so close, the way that they do certain things, the kiss even, feel like you said, feels a very intimate. He's the first person that is done, performed on, and you're like, oh, he kissed his hand, and he's doing this burning ritual kind of thing, and it, it, you can't... I definitely started to get some of that where it's like you could definitely perceive it this way. And yeah, I, I guess, like you said, I didn't know that Chuck, I don't know if you said he's gay or bi or whatever. You know, I, I wonder what that is. If that is like maybe within the, the, the text grappling with some of his sexual identity during the writing of this. I don't like I don't know where he was at. Well, and, and obviously the way that intersects with the concept of masculinity um, is a big thing, right? Like, what does it mean to be masculine if you aren't if you aren't? if you don't fit a heteronormative lifestyle, can you be, <laughs> you know, and like, you know, cause according to like classic ideas of masculinity, you're supposed to be out there like, you know, getting all the, all the women is like your goal. Right. So how does a man fit into that if he doesn't have that drive, but also is attracted to masculinity, right? Like you would think that that's, that's something that is inherent there too. And so maybe like grappling with like how to feel about that if masculinity is something you are attracted to as a masculine man. But I, I've seen a lot of people talk about how like, oh, Fight Club is actually, um, a, you know, a, a gay man reckoning with his own sexuality. And like there's like a whole reading of Fight Club as that and masculinity through that lens. Um, it wasn't something I was like thinking about throughout this or anything, but I did I did remember that reading of it and i occasionally thought about it um and it is it is you know in and in works of truly interesting and transcendent pieces of literary fiction and and just really just any fiction i think like it's it's um it's got enough meat there that you can read it in so many different ways and you can analyze it in so many different ways and it doesn't have obvious answers that that is all a strength i think of this novel um and ultimately is something that i think brings people back to it 
to re reanalyze and to to appreciate. Um, I guess I guess now that we're getting towards the end here, um, you know, although we we're just kind of again we're just kind of hopping around, but that's you know the way it goes. I wanted to ask you as a first time reader of the book, how did it line up with what you were expecting? What surprised you? What didn't? And what do you, what did you think of the book just as as a no, as a novel? What did you think of it? So, you know, the nature of the mediums, I found it really interesting the ways that the trick was able to be concealed to to the reader in a way that in the film it's the film is kind of like pulling the rug out from underneath you in a way more so and i you know i don't remember this the very specific details of like how they dole out the tyler stuff to to make it feel as if he's one and the same as the narrator i can tell you i've seen this movie a bunch of times they do it really smartly in the movie it's right. really yeah. cleverly done, but you have to do it in a different way when you're doing a movie. You just have to because you're showing so much, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're showing it a lot and it's like you can't have them just pop off screen. Like there were times that in, in the novel, literally in the scene, it's just like and Tyler just he, he disappeared or something. And you're like, you're, yeah, Tyler was just gone as if he disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're to take that as like, oh, he's really quick and he just left the room when Marla showed up. But that's not the case. Well, like, and we also know our character is like so out of it. He's like sleepwalking all the time and stuff to where like when things seem to almost break reality, you can explain it as just like this character is so is like already borderline at the edge of reality anyway at any given moment. Right. So, I mean, I appreciated it for those those reasons. It's a really fun way to experience a story I've seen before. Yeah. And, and, you know, did it surprise you to see how much of the movie is in the book? Because I feel like this is did, one yeah. where it's like really close. Absolutely. Yeah, I was I was ready to come into this and be like, it's, you know, pretty much plot wise, the same exact thing happens in and, and verbatim scenes. A lot of the time, a lot of the best lines in the movie are right out of the book. And that's that's a huge credit to the author, right? Like that's that's a massive deal when a filmmaker like Fincher keeps so much of that and keeps the core really intact. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it it's just a really interesting and unique story, especially at the time where I can totally see why Fincher would want to want to adapt something like this because it's transgressive and and it wants to push people's buttons and, and see how far the envelope can be pushed. So, you know, I appreciated reading it for the first time and, and I, I had a really good time with it. And I think in me saying that there were some some Vonnegut things that I was noticing, I think that's a compliment that that because I, I really appreciate Vonnegut's style. And, you know, I guess it's not a perfect comparison. I hope we get to cover some more Vonnegut on here. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a, a perfect comparison. I don't think it's exact, but I feel that that this, you know, Palinek is probably a, a Vonnegut fan, if I was to guess. Yeah, I don't know. I would guess so, too. But I, I don't again, I don't know. I don't know the man. So just I guess real quick, let's circle in on the Project Mayhem stuff as stuff gets too far, right? Like Robert Paulson dies and things change. And all of a sudden we find out that when you die, you get a name. But when you're not when you're not dead you have no name in project mayhem so you're dehumanized in a way but you get your humanity back now that you're dead um there's being there's bombs being made there's castrations um a couple people do get killed um you know it gets violent towards the end here and it leads up to this moment where he's got a gun in his mouth our narrator is and he's called marla who has shown up and is trying to talk him out of what he's going to about to do and I think in an important distinction from the movie, <laughs> the bombs don't work. 
um, he finds out that Tyler like mixed it wrong or something. And so the buildings that they are all expecting to blow up don't blow up. However, he does still shoot himself and quote unquote kill Tyler Durden. Um, yeah. And then we get one final chapter where he's like in a mental institution and he's comparing it to heaven. But I think importantly here with Marla also, they both admit that they like one another and they're not willing to say love because they're both like, that's too much. But like, well, and she knows the difference between the two. She somehow nearing the end is able to differentiate between, oh, I understand Tyler versus the narrator. And that romantic connection is like the only thing that's presented as an alternative to all the stuff Tyler's been saying. Because ultimately, Tyler is so anti-relationships with women, it seems like. Like, he's like, another. you don't need another woman in your life. You need, you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing Tyler hates. And ultimately, our narrator connects with Marla in a way that you don't think Tyler would approve of. Like, Tyler views Marla only as a sex object, whereas if the narrator connects with her as a person. And that's the one, I guess, thing that is presented within the text as an alternative to Tyler's point of view. The narrator doesn't have a name and that the whole, you know, when you're in Mayhem, Project Mayhem, you don't have a name. Like, that's interesting to know. We never learn his name. I don't know. Just an interesting. And I'm sure there are people have been driven mad trying to figure out what his name is because that that tends to be what people do when they (laughs) when someone doesn't have a name or a line is said sort of whispered to somebody and they don't know what was said they always try to figure out what was said Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is with that transition into him killing off tyler durden we get the fake out of heaven which i thought was actually really funny we start out the chapter and he's like i've talked to god and and when he uh you know, he told me basically that, you know, I am a special snowflake and, and, you know, he called him and then he called God a liar. And, and then he's like, I'm just kidding. I'm actually just in a, in a mental institution of some kind. Well, the descriptions, like you, the, the way that the angels dress and the, you know, you learn that they, they're basically orderlies, they're giving him pills and he's, and occasionally there are still members of fight club who like call him sir and stuff that he'll encounter within the asylum. Um, notably Chuck, uh, Palinuk has gone on to write Fight Club 2 and Fight Club 3, both in graphic novel form. I haven't read either of them. but um, So the story has continued uh, eventually. Um, one other thing I want to point out is there's this like a small moment, but it's towards the end of the book, so it has importance, of this murder mystery party that played out where the murder was real. And it's described as like an Agatha Christie style murder mystery, which I thought was funny because we yeah. just released Murder on the Orient Express to our main feed. And again, like Tyler has actually killed several people, I think has become clear here at the end. Um, and I think that's something that is changed in the movie. Tyler is rep- is in a way responsible for the death of Robert Paulson, but he hasn't like pulled the trigger and murdered a couple people. Whereas here he has, he kills, he kills the narrator's boss. There are things like that that Tyler has done that I think more solidly lands Tyler in the villain of the book ultimately place. Whereas the movie is a little bit more like maybe he is, maybe he isn't, I guess. Yeah. That'll be interesting to know, especially with the bomb going off in the, in the movie. Yeah. Which we will have to revisit. Now I know, I remember them saying something about those, those buildings being empty, but like we'll have to revisit that when we watch the movie. But yeah, man, I, I think that's where I'm at with the book. I think that it feels like I've barely touched on a lot of stuff, dived into some things, but there's whole other aspects that we could we can get into. And so I'm really glad that we're going to revisit it next week when we get into the movie, because 
it is so similar that I think it's going to give us ample opportunity to like re-examine a lot of these themes, get back into the chorus, so to speak, of this piece, and um, and then of course look at the filmmaking that's going on because Fincher is is a master and and somebody that um, you know I'm excited to talk about with you. You know, overall, just glad that I've that I've read through this now and seen where the source and knowing that the source is so rich and it's so you know it's such a there's a reason why the film adapted so much of it, you know, scene by scene. Uh, that's great that, that I was able to now see where it all came from. So if you enjoyed this coverage, please let us know in the form of a rating and review, whatever app you chose to listen on. Uh, shout us out on social media. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of some like Project Mayhem way of like, <laughs> spreading the yeah. word of ink to film <laughs> if you can just go out to your you know go to your local supermarket and just jump somebody and then let them beat you up then that'd be great <laughs> and then at the end after they have beat you to a pulp tell them to listen to the ink to film podcast <laughs> also if you'd like to support the podcast in another way check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash ink to film and we release bonus content on there monthly we just released to the main feed a previously uh patreon exclusive episode that luke mentioned about agatha christie adaptation 2017 murder on the orient express yes that's like a a preview of what you can expect um that that episode is over a year and a half old i think so if you want to catch up with all the stuff we've released since that would be the way to do it also if you'd like to connect with us on social media we are at ink to film on twitter instagram facebook tiktok uh we have a youtube channel check us out on youtube Uh, All of those are great places to connect with us. All right, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, Excited to get back to the World of Fight Club next week in the film. And until next time, keep adapting.